Thank you, Dr. Bruce. So the way that I'm going to do that, Bruce, <laughs> is I'm going to let Jesus do it. And so we need to turn in our Bibles, if you were in Genesis, to John 4 and see how Jesus is going to unpack how we are to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. John chapter 4. Before I get there, I'd like to start out by addressing those here this morning or on the live stream who profess to be disciples of Jesus. So maybe here, you're here this morning and you're exploring who God is and you're exploring who Jesus is and you haven't yet submitted to calling him king of your life or you're listening on the live stream and that's where you're at and that's okay. But for a minute, I want to talk specifically to those who call themselves disciples of Jesus because I want you to know something this morning and I want to encourage you this morning. I want you to understand, if maybe you came in here this morning not understanding this, that you are the hope of the world. You are the hope of the world. Jesus himself believed this. He spoke of it in a prayer for you shortly before he died on the cross. John 17, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, his disciples. I do not ask for these only, not just for these 12. So Jesus, before going to the cross, doesn't see merely 12 disciples. He looks to this moment and thinks of you. Do not ask for them only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So what Jesus understood was that the Father was sending him into the world that would begin a chain reaction of hope and salvation being sent into the world. Those who believed in Jesus would then tell others, who would then tell others, who would then tell others, who would then tell others, so that you, this morning, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, believe in Jesus. Because he prayed that that would happen. And because a chain of hope and salvation went unbroken and landed on your heart, and you became alive and followed him. So that, if you are a disciple of Jesus, what he believes about you is that you are the hope of those around you. You are the hope of those in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the places where you regularly shop, the restaurants you regularly eat, the family members who live with you, your extended family, your roommate, your classmates at school. You are their hope. Do you understand that God has uniquely designed your life to count for the spread of his hope amid some of the most hopeless situations in the world. You, uniquely you, in the places and the circumstances and the life that no one else can inhabit because you are uniquely you. I can't reach the people that you know. They're not in my circle. They're not my friends. I can't do that. You're put there to reach them. Which means, (laughs) look around you. Look at the possibility. You're not looking around you. You're still looking at me. You're going to have to do what I say this morning. 
Look at the possibility and the potential in this room right now. The resources that are in this room, the network of relationships, the various fields of industry, the differing demographics of our culture and community that are represented here in this room, or where they're not, (laughs) we reach them so that they are. All of our diversity, and yet, in the words of Paul, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You have a hope that belongs to your call. One master named Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all, right? Grace goes through me. I don't want to be a stagnant pool of grace. And you shouldn't want that either. We want to be pipelines of grace to all around us according to the grace that is given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. If you would just, if we would just believe, if we would look around and see the potential in this room and really believe it, we would really be astonished. It's no wonder that Jesus believed that you are the hope of the world. (laughs) He sits at the right hand of the Father right now at this, do you understand this? God is on the throne and Jesus is sitting at his right hand and he looks at you and he sees great potential. Great potential. I've had another thought this week in addition to that one. And increasingly actually over the last few years. And it is that the Christian life is filled with a lot of tensions. There's a lot of tensions in the Christian life. It's really easier not to be a Christian. So if you're here and you're thinking like, this is a cool hobby, would you please find another hobby? Because it's hard to be a Christian. Jesus will jack with your life in the way that, one of the things that we discover is that there's all these tensions in the Christian life. The tension of the already of the kingdom of God and the not yet of it. The tension of the old man that still seems to operate in me and the new man that is supposed to be me. You see, disciples of Jesus are both and kind of people. We're not either or kind of people. And let's just be honest this morning about another one of those tensions, another kind of both and that operates for the Christian. Namely, our lives are shot through with glory, with eternal matters, with incredibly weighty realities that are sobering and deep and ineffable and serious and at times can feel overwhelming when we think and ponder and meditate on them. And at the same time, our lives are absolutely ordinary and mundane, and regular, and routine, right? Do do you see that in your life? That both and of, of the glorious and the regular. That moment where you're like reading your Bible and like Jesus breaks through and you sense the presence of the Spirit and then you're doing laundry. Right? That's life. And one of the marvels of the incarnation of Jesus is that Jesus himself experienced that same both and. He understood that his life was shot through with moments of glory. Like, I mean, miracles. People healed and raised from the dead. And 
eating and experiencing gas. <laughs> that was not in the manuscript. He recognized these healthy, they're healthy tensions. They're a healthy tension. And I recognize them too. Much better at 53 than I did at 43 and 33. Life is glorious and life is ordinary. And I want you, as, you, as we head into this story again in John 4 that we began last week, I want you to see how the weighty and the glorious are, are smooshed together with the ordinary and the mundane. I want you to pay attention as Jesus talks about weighty things and serious things and matters of great gravity and urgency in the midst of the everyday of his life. In essence, in this story, Jesus and his little merry band of men are on a road trip, right? They're on a road trip, and they make a pit stop at a well because that's what you do. That's what we do when we're on road trips, right? Like we stop at Sinclair, and everybody gets to go in, and I get to tell all the kids, whatever you want, get a drink, get a snack. I mean, isn't that fun? Like when you, who doesn't love to stop at a, at a gas station and head into the convenience store on a road trip? Right? Do you like, no one's responding. Like, do you love that? It's so fun. Like this is, Jesus is on a road trip, right? So of course they take a pit stop. And at this pit stop, we're going to see how the weighty and the eternal can, and maybe should we say should, collide with the ordinary matters of life. How ordinary humans living their ordinary lives can also be in the midst of their ordinary lives, the hope of the world. That's what we're going to see. John 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw Water, the most ordinary thing in the first century world that could happen, drawing water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. They're at the Sinclair. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is really deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Can you imagine you're at the water cooler at work and you just want a cup of water and some dude says that to you? The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, 
You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship, with the, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. And what happens next is the essence of discipleship. It's the next step of evangelism, of going and sharing, being taught to his disciples. Just then... His disciples came back, verse 27, interrupting the conversation between Jesus and the woman. They marveled, maybe creating a bit of a ruckus with their hushed conversation with each other, right? I mean, they marveled. So what is that? I don't think that means that they just kind of looked. They marveled and they started talking. Like, what's he doing talking to a woman? He's not supposed to be talking to a woman. He's all alone. Why is he talking to this woman? wasn't normal or acceptable at this time in history and in their culture for a man to speak alone to a woman who was not his wife. But no one said maybe to her, what do you seek? Or maybe to Jesus, why are you talking with her? So in the awkward circumstance of these other men having now joined Jesus and the woman, interrupting them and not yet speaking directly to them, just talking with each other, The woman leaves her water jar, verse 28, and goes away into the town and says to the people, come and see a man that told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So the broken woman with a shattered life has tasted the goodness of the Messiah and experienced such satisfaction that now as one who likely believes in Jesus at this moment and is now filled with hope, forgets about her need, why was she there? Water. What did she leave? The water jar. She forgets that because now her mind is just filled with hope and with Jesus and with joy and she immediately runs into the village. The people that have ostracized her, the people that have rejected her, the people that have caused her brokenness and she starts telling them about this Jesus who has told her everything she ever did. This uniquely created woman in her unique circumstances and in her life reaches people that nobody else can reach because she has seen and now she wants to share. Verse 30, with the result that they, the villagers, went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. So, so intrigued are these townspeople at the transformation and the testimony of the one they had previously cast out, they begin to search for Jesus themselves. Verse 31, meanwhile, so while all that is happening, right? So Jesus proclaims, woman believes, goes into town, starts witnessing and evangelizing. People are coming out of the town. While all that is happening, something's still going, there's another story that's going on 
here. The disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus, eat. We got these great snacks at the Sinclair. Those, they had the barbecue corn nuts, Jesus. Note something here. The whole point that they've stopped at this well and village in the first place was because Jesus and I assume the disciples were weary, thirsty, and hungry from their road trip. Remember, this was not a journey like we do, that they, they weren't doing this in a car. They were hoofing this on foot. And Jesus still, do you, do you, do you get in the story right now that he still hasn't gotten any water? <laughs> Give me a drink. She never gave him a drink. And he still hasn't gotten any food. He hasn't eaten. And apparently, even as the woman is gone and is testifying, maybe the disciples have begun eating themselves the food that they got, but he hasn't. Jesus is too wrapped up in the woman's story and situation. And maybe he's considering the lives of those who he has noticed are now starting to exit and come out from the village, making their way to him. But the disciples haven't even noticed because they're too Busy with their road trip snacks, eating. So they're understandably maybe trying to get, like Jesus, dude, eat something. Verse 32, but Jesus said to them, I. Now, if you could read Greek, you would see this is put in the emphatic position which means that Jesus is trying to create some di- a contrast and some difference between himself and his disciples. I, me, I have food to eat that you, also emphatic position, do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? <laughs> okay, that's funny. You should laugh at that. Because <laughs> that's funny. Like, I have food, Jesus, eat. I have food to eat that you don't know about. Uh, Did she give him some food? John, Philip, did you, was he, why did he even send us in to get food if he's already had food to eat? They're so confused. Now, we can't get tone in the Bible so that as John next gives us what Jesus says, we don't know how Jesus said it. And I think so often early in my Christian life, the tone that I had in Jesus' mind was one that would probably be mine, namely, I'd be so upset and frustrated with the disciples because they're such dunderheads, aren't they? Until I got old enough, immature enough to understand I'm a capital D dunderhead, right? Like, and then the tone that I started to hear in Jesus' voice wasn't like this tone of like, oh my gosh, you guys, but one of patience, Jesus, I think, so often saw opportunities to connect the dots and help his disciples understand things that they weren't catching. And I think he probably did that pretty patiently. Jesus said to them, verse 34, now, what's he gonna do? He is going to infuse something weighty and significant into this ordinary discussion on food. My food is, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus, get some food. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Where did you get this food? Here's what my food is. Oh my goodness, Jesus just Jesus juked the disciples. (laughs) You see that? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What fuels you? 
What captures you? What consumes you? What defines and drives you? Have you ever been so consumed by something, some project, some task, something, that you literally forgot to eat? Has that ever happened to you? I, I completely got, I, I did not get lunch today. You forgot to get a beverage? We see in this moment what fuels, captures, consumes, defines, and drives Jesus for far more important to him than food and water is to do the will and accomplish the work of his Father, and in doing this, I do not think that Jesus is pulling us away from all the ordinary aspects of human life. I don't think Jesus is being some kind of super spiritual being here that says, I don't ever need water, and I don't ever have to have food. I don't need to make a meal. That's not what he's doing. I think what Jesus is trying to teach us is that all of that ordinary activity in our life should also be infused with the glory of doing the will and the work of his Father. It should always be on my mind in the midst of the normal operations of being human. It's not either or. It's both and. How could this not be his food and his sustenance and the thing that fuels Jesus to do what he's doing right now so that he doesn't even think about food and water. John has already written in this story in chapter one that the whole reason that Jesus was sent into the world is because the world was shrouded in darkness and Jesus would be the light because people were lost in present and eternal death brought about by sin and Jesus would be their life. John has already told the story of how Jesus shared in another ordinary encounter with Nicodemus, right? John chapter three, you can look at it right above this story. He told, what did he tell Nicodemus? It's one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son. Listen to this evangelist. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what is a lost night's sleep to Jesus if it lets him talk to Nicodemus so that he could know the good news? What is physical food to Jesus when the Samaritan woman will head to hell if he doesn't speak? What is two more days in Sychar to Jesus if it means that villagers coming out towards them will receive eternal life? It's absolutely nothing and everything. You see, Friends, Jesus shows us over and over and over again that he is willing to adjust the rhythms of his life to the rhythms of the lives of the people he is trying to reach. Let me say that to you again because I think we need to be like him in this. Jesus is willing to adjust the rhythms of his life in order to reach, to to the rhythms of the life of the people that he is trying to reach. That so convicts me. Because my iCal is planned out for like two months. There's not a lot of white space in it. 
our lives get so full and those things feel so important that when events like this happen, can you imagine yourself saying two extra days in some place that you had traveled to because God opened up an opportunity to speak to some people about the good news of his son? How many of us would be willing to do that and change our calendars and schedules like that? I'm preaching to myself here. I don't adjust my rhythms. I like my rhythms and routines. Thank you very much. And you do too. And so how are all of those people that are out there that don't live the kind of lives that we live, how are they going to get reached if we don't change? Jesus wants his friends and us to see that this calling is urgent. Verse 35, do you not say, he's still teaching them, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Okay, what he's doing, he's getting a little snarky here. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. It's kind of like we would say, if someone came and said, like we were working on something, and they came and they were kind of surprised that we hadn't gotten very far, and then we say, hey man, Rome one built in a day. And then that person comes back and goes, yeah, but you've been at this six months, not a day. Jesus is saying, don't give me, there are yet four months. The harvest is now. The time is past. There's no time to waste. You need to be about the harvest. And, and now the two scenes of the story start to come together and converge. Everything that was happening in the town, this teaching that's happening between Jesus and the disciples, they're approaching people lost in darkness who need the good news of Jesus. And Jesus says, look, see, you don't have to wait for anything. You don't have to wait for four months. Look right in front of us. The opportunity is here right now. The fields are white for harvest. I am tired of Christians praying, God, would you just please give me an opportunity today? Your life is an opportunity. You will, you will meet countless lost, dead people today. You don't have to pray for the opportunity. What you need to pray for is courage and boldness. Me too, to open my mouth. Like she did. Couldn't stop her. There is such a sharp contrast here between what Jesus sees and what the disciples see. Isn't there? In the places where the disciples are merely trying to pass through, apparently not seeing the need around them, Jesus sees such a different picture. They only have shock at seeing him talk to a woman, but he saw her as a broken, used, discarded image bearer of his father who needed living water and saving from all the empty cisterns of her life. They only saw a village filled with half-breed Samaritans, right? Remember why they don't want to go through Samaritans? That's all they see, just a place where we can pick up a few loaves of bread because Jesus is hungry, but he saw a field ripe for harvest. He saw an opportunity for reaping unto eternal life. He saw the opportunity for joy to be the hope of the world in Sychar. Because what could be better than seeing someone saved? We have to remind, this, this sermon is just one big long reminder, ain't it? 
Do you remember yourself before Jesus? Oh, yeah. It's like those before and after pictures at Weight Watchers. Man, you should have seen me before Jesus. That's what Jesus sees. He sees an opportunity for joy to be a part of seeing someone's life transformed. And so he looks at all these people. You, you know the other thing that I think Jesus sees? And that I, wanna, I want eyes. Here's a prayer we could pray. Jesus, give me your eyes. Give me your vision. Because the other thing, see, Jesus sees an opportunity for joy and to be hope and to bring the good news. And part of what drives him is because he always also sees that there is another reaping. He's talking about a harvest here, but he also sees that one day there's going to be another reaping, not of joy and rejoicing like they could have right now if they would open their their mouths, but of, of tragedy and tears. The reaping of God's angels at the last day when he will separate those who believe in Jesus from those who do not. Those who believe will be harvested to life and those who do not will be what? Do you know? Say it if you know it. We should know it. They will be thrown into a fiery hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Go to Matthew 13, family, and read it and memorize and pray, God, give me those eyes so that I always see that that reaping is coming. Jesus sees this way. This is the lens through which he sees the every ordinary day, sees it shot through with the eternal because he believes what his Father says will be, will be. And I wonder if I do. I wonder if I believe in hell. Jesus does, and because he believes, he acts. And he instructs all of his disciples to act and to see. Do you see? Do you see? Do you see, disciples? He tells them that this too is what they must do. And he sends them out, telling them there is no time to wait. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to imitate Jesus. That's what being a disciple means. This isn't about guilt, it's about shame. I've thought, I've thought so much this week about how I can have, this, have it not be in you that you feel guilty. Jesus doesn't want your guilty obedience. He doesn't want my guilty obedience. He wants our joy. I, I want to be like this woman running into Salida. Come and see. <laughs> Come and see. This man This Christ, this Messiah. And I know for me, something needs to change. A few years ago, while studying these practices, I read read this book. Um, It's a story of David Platt going to the Himalayan mountains, and and he shares, this is essentially like one big journal of his trip there. And there's this point in the story where he shares about um, being in this little village and 
seen a funeral procession go down by a river. And within 24 hours of the death, this tribe wraps the body in white cloth, puts them on a funeral pyre, and lights the head, the hands, and the feet. And he sits down and he's watching this body burn before him on these logs. And he realizes, because he knows this village doesn't know Jesus, that this person didn't know Jesus. And the physical thing that he is seeing right now is an image of a spiritual reality of what that person is experiencing in that moment. So if you could imagine with me in your imagination that the person isn't dead, but they're alive on that pyre and they've been lit aflame because they don't know Jesus. And it absolutely wrecks him. It wrecks him. How can it be that there are vast swaths of people in the world that have never heard the name of Jesus? How can this be? And he's talking to the gentleman that he's there on mission with and, and they're talking about Platt being wrecked in this way and he says, we, we were walking along for a while in silence and Aaron, this friend, as they've been talking about hell, says, Here's the conclusion I've come to about hell. You and I and every person who comes into this place has two options for how we think and live based on what we see here. Okay, so this person burning who didn't know Jesus. Okay, I'm listening, David says. The first option is to disbelieve the Bible, to stare at burning bodies and decide that hell just isn't real. Or maybe just to decide that Jesus is not necessary to gain heaven. That people can go to heaven apart from faith in Jesus. But the only way to believe that is to disbelieve the Bible. So that's option one, disbelieve the Bible. And the second option, David asks, the second option is to believe the Bible and to show that belief by spending your life sharing his truth and love in a world of urgent spiritual need. Not merely physical need, Aaron says, as important as physical need is, but to live like people's spiritual need is their most urgent need. Are we willing to live that way? If something needs to change, and I think it does, what can we do? Because see, I, I sat with the elders and the deacons on Tuesday night um, and read a longer portion of this book. And I asked them, I said, men, do you think it's a valid question to ask of myself? When was the last time as a direct result of my life and my words that someone became a believer of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is that a valid question to ask? Is that a reasonable question? I think it is. I think it's a reasonable question for all of us to ask. Again, not if you feel guilt welling up in you right now, that's Satan. But if you feel conviction welling up in you right now, that's the Holy Spirit. And I plead with you, do not quench him. Do not quench the Spirit of God in your life right now. So what could we do? Two things. Number one, 
work hard to keep people from eternal suffering. Work hard to keep people from eternal suffering. In the language of our next step, go and share. I am suggesting that we choose to believe, as Jesus did, that hell is real. I am suggesting that we follow him without delay and with a sense of great urgency in the midst of the every day of our lives to see as God sees the great harvest around us and to sow and to reap unto eternal life. We are the hope of the world. We have Jesus and all his promises. We have the answers to the questions. We have the power of the Holy Spirit with us. We have everything that we need, family. So is there any reason that we could not find someone today, even today, and share the good news of Jesus with them? Is there any reason that we couldn't do that? Platt, think about it this way. How would you want a person to live if you were on a road leading to an eternal hell and no one had ever told you how to get off that road so you could spend an eternity in paradise in a new heavens and new earth in the joy of the Father and Jesus himself? How would you want someone to live? Answer that question and live accordingly. Number two, be the church that God calls us to be. Be the church that God calls us to be. That's what these next steps have been all about. It's so easy to complicate our lives, family. It's so easy to get stuff in our lives and stuff in our church and programs and all the rest of it that aren't important and don't matter. So read your Bible to hear from Jesus. Talk with God in the name of Jesus. Come and see Jesus in the weekly worship service. And I pray that you, you just have, right? You've seen Jesus. You've seen who he is. And now go and share the good news of Jesus. <laughs> you have orders. My son left boot camp with a piece of paper that were his orders. He had to show up at a certain place at a certain time to enter six months of rigorous training. He did not have a choice about showing up there. If he did not show up there, there would be serious consequences. He never questioned for a second in his mind not showing up at Camp Pendleton. He had orders. So do we. We've been given a commission. We've been given everything we need to fulfill it. To walk out of here today without giving any of this a second thought would have been to completely waste your morning. So I pray that you will. That you'll consider this. That you'll ponder this. Over lunch. Go out with, look, go out with someone. Grab another couple. Go to Cafe Don or whatever coffee shop. Go to Howl. Go to, go to 50 Burger and get a big old burger of onion rings to bring death quicker. I mean, go and say, and say to each other, what's your, what's your next step in relationship to going and sharing? Maybe it's having your unbelieving neighbor for dinner. Maybe it's taking your unbelieving coworker to lunch or talking to your unbelieving family member. How will you prayerfully help at least one other non-believing person take one step closer to Jesus this week? Answer that question. Worship team, would you come up and I want to close this in prayer. Father, 
We want to be the kind of people who will do whatever you want us to do with all that you have given to us. There is so much. I, I look out of this room. I am so happy to be a part of Grace Church. These are such wonderful people with so much potential impossibility and riches of resources for your kingdom. So lead us, Jesus. Lead me. Lead us to follow you together no matter what. Everything on the table. If it means selling a home or selling our building, we would do it. If it meant eliminating some personal commitment or some ministry program, we will do it. If it means rearranging our personal budget or our church budget, we will do it. You are the king and we are your subjects. We will do what you would have us do because we want your good news to spread more than we want to keep to our traditions and our current priorities. We want your hope to be known and experienced and enjoyed in a needy world more than we want our personal and church family comforts. We know that something needs to change. Show us what it is. Yes, and very amen in Jesus' name.